Father in heaven, we thank you for this time together this morning. We ask, Father, that you would open up the inner recesses of our hearts that, Lord, we might clearly hear from you. Speak to us through your word. Give us eyes that see and a heart that receives. And may you be glorified this day. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray these things. Amen. If you have your Bibles, we're in the book of Revelation chapter 3, beginning with the 14th verse, Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, uh, as we talk about the church temperature. You know, it's really just been the last, what, 50, 60 years where you could actually can control the temperature in the church. And isn't it amazing how soft we are now? I mean, like if the temperature's off about three degrees, oh, I'm cold. Oh, it's so hot in here. You know, and I mean, even at my house, you know, if it's not 72 to 76, somebody's complaining in the house, you know, and I'm thinking, man, what would happen to you if you grew up like you were born in like even 1900? Uh, you know, how would that work for you? And, and what's really amazing is um, you know, how many of you grew up in a church? You're going to date yourself here at this point. OK, I'd like to say this opportunity that I didn't grow up in a church like this. But how many of you grew up in a church that didn't have air conditioning? There you go. There you go. Some people that I thought were uh, younger than me. God bless you for being here today. Uh, <clears throat> My church, I never had a church that didn't have air conditioning. Now, there was a church down the road about two miles further that didn't have air conditioning. And I remember going over there a couple of times and I just thought it was the most wild thing. Uh, they had a furnace, but they didn't have air conditioning. They just opened the, open up the, uh, the windows and that's what it was. And that's, that's the way most people worshiped almost all the way through history. Uh, it was either hot or cold when you came to church. I mean, there were probably about, you know, about an eight week period where it was just right. And what's interesting though, is that today we look at it and we think about church and we think about it. Is it going to be comfortable? Is it going to be safe? Is it going to be easy? And those are the questions we're asking, and, and those are probably the wrong questions to be asking when we think about the context of church and we think about the context of worship. I think those were the questions primarily that the church of Laodicea was asking. As a matter of fact, we know the great descriptive term that we see that we, we've heard so many times I wish you were hot or cold, but because you're not, I, you're lukewarm. I want to spew you out of my mouth. That comes from this passage right here. And what Jesus is saying, and this is, we'll look in this text, we'll see is, you know, I, I wish that you would be significant in some way rather than just coming and, and thinking, I want to be comfortable and not making any impact. Matter of fact, you fall into something called uh, modern day we call genericide. Anybody know what genericide is? Okay, it's not genocide, but genericide. Okay, this is actually a fairly new terminology in the, in the dictionary now. And it, what it means is it's basically when a substance or a product becomes so common that it is known by that name rather than its, its specific name. For an example, uh, if you grew up in the South like me and, and somebody said, hey, can I have a Coke? You didn't necessarily mean Coke. It could be Dr. Pepper, it could be root beer, it could be 7-Up, it could be a Pepsi, uh, but Coke was generically used. As a matter of fact, a lot of us still use that term generically. We use the term Coke, and it just kind of takes over all soft drinks when you say the word Coke. I, I got a good one for you. How about the word Kleenex? Did you know that they're actually not called Kleenex? As a matter of fact, I go to Kroger over here, and you buy these generic ones, and they're not. They're called facial tissues. But we all call them Kleenex. Because of genericide. They're all Kleenex, I tell you. I thought I was Seinfeld for just a moment when I said that. Excuse me. I was a George Costanza moment. 
Xerox, I mean, we could go on. There, there, there are a lot of different products like that that now have taken on the name themselves. Uh, their brand name has now become the product name as we think about them. What's sad is that it's also become true of Christianity in America today. It's just kind of genericized. It's just kind of a brand name that's just kind of swept over our nation. And that's what we call people. As a matter of fact, we just, I just saw a study uh, this week in the news that one in four people who call themselves Christians when they were asked, uh, do they believe in the, death, the little death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? They said, well, no, not, not literally. I don't, I don't necessarily ascribe to that. I call myself a Christian. That right there is a, definitely a product of genericity because that is the principle for which we hang our faith on. Okay, that's why we take the word Christ, because of his death, burial and resurrection, that he conquered sin and death. And through him, we have salvation. That's what defines us as Christians today. But yet people would take that name and say, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe that. That's a perfect example of genericide right there. What we have to be careful is that we don't become just a generic name, a generic brand Christian, so to speak, that I just take a title, but not the commitment, not the death, not the burial, not the crucifixion, not the blood. For in that, then I've just made a genericide of the faith in itself. And I believe that's what's happened in the church of Laodicea. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 3, beginning with the 14th verse, the 7th. And final church. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen. That word Amen means true and binding. We use it at the end of our prayers sometimes. It means true and binding. Speaking of Jesus Christ here who is speaking to the church. The faithful, the true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Know your deeds that are neither hot nor cold. I wish they were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. But you say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need anything. But you don't understand that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and have white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shamefulness and your nakedness and sad to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. It's interesting. Jesus is speaking here. And in verse uh, 15, he says, I know your deeds. I want you to know, I know your deeds and they're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one. But because you're lukewarm and because you're not hot or cold, the literal word, we don't like to say it. Most translations don't like to translate it this way. I want to vomit. That's what Jesus says. I mean, it's about as strong a terminology as you see in the New Testament. I would like to, you make me want to vomit. That's pretty strong. Aren't you glad you came to church today? So what, that's Jesus' descriptive term here. Now, <clears throat> many of us grew up hearing, hearing, you know, this analogy. Well, you just need to be hot or cold. You either be on fire for Christ or just don't believe at all or just be a cold Christian. I don't think that's right, by the way, okay? I don't think Jesus is going, boy, if you're cold as ice, I'm happy with that. I don't think he's saying that, okay? I don't think that's what he's saying at all. Remember, when we look at a text, there's three questions we always have to answer. Number one, what did it say? What does it literally say? Well, we've just read what it literally said. What did it mean back then 
And then what does it say to us today? We always have to answer those three questions anytime we look at a passage. So let's talk for just a moment about what it meant back then. The Laodicea was a very successful, thriving, bustling city. Very affluent. As a matter of fact, there was a tri-star area. Uh, you had Colossae over here. You had Heropolis over here. And you had Laodicea right here. And they were kind of the tri-cities that you had. And these three cities had done well economically, but particularly Laodicea. They had at least three industries that were major money makers. I mean, it was a very wealthy place. First of all, they had black wool. They had most of their sheep, for, for whatever reason, had black wool. They don't know if it was the mineral components or whatever. And then they also discovered, uh, or they also would enhance it with this black dye. So they had the world's most beautiful black fabrics, the, one of the greatest textile industries in all the known world, and particularly in the mo- what we call modern-day Turkey. So uh, people from all over the world, uh, shipping and trading and commercialization of this black wool, was rampant. It, it was the place known if you wanted to buy fine clothing, if you wanted to buy that which really stuck out, that really identified you, you wanted to make sure you go to Laodicea and get the right duds. Okay? And so people did. And the wealthy came and they shipped it. The second industry they had was it was a great financial banking center. It was kind of the Wall Street of that day. There was a lot of money being made. There was a lot of lending occurring, a lot of banking going on. And it was noted by the empire as the banking center of, of Asia Minor and of the Turkey, of modern day Turkey of that area. And then the third thing, they had a great medicinal school. A lot of people would come there. They had invented this eye salve. Matter of fact, from the the Philegia stone and they would round it into powder and they'd make this salve and they would apply it eyes and it helped with certain eye ailments. And so that was a very uh, prevalent issue, particularly in the desert. And so a lot of people struggled with dry eye or with eye disease or eye problems. And so they'd come and they'd have that salve and it, at a minimum it would provide relief and comfort and sometimes might even promote healing. And so it was a well-known center. And people were in these markets. And uh, we know from Secular studies that uh, there was a large Jewish population, but they don't say anything about the Christian church, anything about the church at Laodicea like they do in many of the other descriptive churches that we see. And so many of them were doing quite well financially. And we, we assume that the Christian population was doing well as all, but we really don't hear hardly anything written about them. No one really persecuted them. Uh, we don't really hear anything about it. And it gives us the assumption that they had just kind of morphed into this culture that was very affluent, doing very well. And the one problem that the city of Laodicea had was it didn't have water. It was strategically located for commercialization, but it didn't have a water system. So what happened is they had to take the water from Heropolis, which was warm. Matter of fact, people would come there and they would experience the hot baths if they had ailments, if they had arthritis. And it, had, it was kind of a mineral water. It had a high concentration of uh, calcium carbonate in it. And people would come there and that water was thought to be healing water. And that's where most of their water came from. It would be piped in five miles away from Heropolis and they had aqueducts that they had built and it would come into the city. The other place was from Colossa and from Colossa they had cold water. They had naturally beautiful springs of cold water coming up and it was thought to be uh, some of the best water of any city in that area. 
And so they had it piped in just a few miles further. It's probably about seven or eight miles away. And so their water system was dependent upon these other two cities. But see, here was the problem. By the time most of their water got there, whether it was coming from Colossa about eight or eight miles away, it wasn't cold anymore. And where the majority of their water came from, five miles away from Heropolis, it certainly wasn't hot anymore. It was lukewarm. And so the water that you would get in that city when it first came in was lukewarm and hard and kind of cloudy. And if you drank some of it, it was just kind of nasty. You'd kind of want to spit it out. Now, we were mentioning how we grew up. I grew up on a hill in a rural area, and we had our own well system. How many of you grew up with your own well water? Okay, and we're going to date ourselves again. Or you were in the hick, hick country like me, all right? You're in the backwoods. So we had our own well water. And uh, the problem is, is we had a high concentration of sulfur there. And so my dad and I, we had to go and put uh, a filter on outside in our well house, out there where the well was. And we put that filter on every month because if we didn't, after about six weeks, the water would start smelling and it would kind of get brown. Now, you could run it hot for a while and it would kind of clean it up, but you had to keep putting that filter on there. And if you just take, took that water without that without it being filtered, it smelled. And if you drank some of it, it, it wouldn't kill you, but it just... It made you want to spit it out. And Jesus is saying in this text right here, he's saying, look, I wish you were hot or cold. I wish you were hot. And the word we read earlier in, in uh, verse 19, earnest is zealous. Uh, he's using that word here. He said it's a derivative of that word. I wish you were zealous. I wish you would stand firm. I wish you would stand for your principles. I wish you'd stand up for your faith. Or I wish you'd be cold. Now, if we go back to Matthew 10, 42 and Mark chapter 9, we see that Jesus commends those who offer someone a cup of cold water in his name as a refreshment, as an encouragement. Jesus isn't saying, I wish you'd be a cold Christian. That would be better off. He's not saying that. He's saying, I wish you would be refreshing and encouraging and ministering. Or I wish you would be zealous and passionate. Matter of fact, I wish you'd be both, but at least be refreshing, at least be of service and encouragement. Or stand strong and passionate, but because you're neither, you're not of service, you're not of refreshment, you're not of encouragement, you're not of passion, you don't stand on the principles, you don't stand up for what you believe, you don't let known the message of Christ, you're just in the middle. You don't do either. You're just tepid and lukewarm, and I just want to spit you out of my mouth. You've made genericide of the faith. That's exactly what he's communicating here. Not that I would rather you just be cold, but that you would at least minimally serve and encourage. And Jesus goes on and He says, but you say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and I don't need a thing. Look, we're doing well. Our community's doing well. My econ- the economy's doing well. My household's doing well. My job's going well. You know, it was interesting. There was an earthquake in 17 AD and then again in 60 A.D. And in one in 60 A.D. completely wiped out all three cities. And Colossa and also Heropolis, they both took funding from the Roman government, which would be like today when we have a hurricane or something. We go in and pr- provide for the cities. Well, basically, when it came to Laodicea, they go, we don't want the bailout. We're going to do this ourselves. We'll take it and we'll handle it ourselves. Our, our, our businesses are good enough. We're strong enough. We're smart enough. We're bright enough. We don't need your money, Rome. We know that that just leads to a little more control. We won't, we won't take any. We'll handle this all ourselves. And they were very proud of that fact. 
And we see that mentality right here. He's saying, you know, you don't think you need me. You're doing church and things are going well. But you don't feel that you need me. But what you don't realize is this. You don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You see, you think you've got this great textile in it. You're the place where you get clothes. You think you've got the banking industry going. You think that physically everything is well. But you're missing it spiritually. He says, I want to count you to buy from me. You're not going to get this from the bank. You're not going to get this from a merchant. I want you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. You see, Jesus walked this earth and He died and He was beaten and He hung upon a cross and He was tortured for our sake. He was refined as gold. Though He was the most pure individual that ever walked the face of the earth. He said, come to Me for your gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich spiritually. And white clothes to wear. You think your beautiful black garments are impressive. But let me tell you what I see is I see your sin. And I see your self-centeredness. What I want you to receive is forgiveness. Those white clothes are a picture of someone who's been forgiven. Someone who's been cleansed. Someone who is seen as righteous before the Lord. So that you can cover your shameful nakedness. And here's some salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. You've lost your spiritual vision. You think, oh, we produce the greatest salve, the greatest medicinal eye ointment in all the world. But I'm telling you, you're blind. You don't recognize the needs of your own heart or the needs around you. You don't recognize what I have done for you. You've lost your spiritual vision. So I have a prescription for you. And here's the prescription. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest, be zealous, be passionate. And repent. So renew your first love and repent. And here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Now, we've used that verse. If you've ever been through evangelism training, you've learned that verse. You memorize that verse. Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anybody will open the door, I'll come in and sup with him and he with me. And that's fine if you want to use it that way. But what Jesus is really writing it to is the church right here. He's knocking on the door of the church saying, Yes, you're comfortable in there. And it's safe in there. And things are going well. But you've left me out. I'm knocking on the door of the church. There are needs around you. There are needs within your own heart. You need to repent of. There are people who are starving that live in your world. There are people who need Christ that are in your neighborhood. There are people who are coming to your church seeking for hope. And yet, you're just so content with what you have. You're missing it. Would you open the door? Would you open the door of your hearts and let me in? Let me come fellowship with you. We talked about hospitality last week. That's exactly what he's talking about. Come into your living space and let me impact the world that you live in, where you work and in your neighborhood and in your community. Let me come in 
and let me take over your life. And he says, to him who overcomes, to him who sees his sin, to him who confesses, to him who renews and repents and open up his life, I will give the right to sit with me on the throne eternally, just as I have overcome and sat down at the right hand of the Father. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying. You know, historically, it's really amazing what the Christians did. When you consider that there were 12 ragtag members of the faith who started off, who really are of no notoriety, and then they turn into 70, and then we see the growth explode, and we see a culture by this time, uh, where Trajan, we believe most, most historians would say Trajan was somewhere in authority at the time that this is probably being read. And Trajan has outlawed Christianity and, and basically issued the edict of exterminating Christianity. He, we see some of the writings from Pliny as they are trying to round them up. And what's amazing, if you look at just about any other religion that has been attacked in that manner, and to the extent and the degree that the Christians were at this particular history, what typically happens is they go into guerrilla warfare. Any other people groups, they grow into guerrilla warfare. Now, there are certain instances where that's not true, but that's typically what happens. But we don't see that happening in this Christian movement. What we see is we see those who continue to be martyred and we see the faith prosper. Now, why did Christianity exists and literally change that culture, literally transform. We see later on in the, in the fourth century, transform the Roman culture into its faith. How did that happen? Why did that occur? Well, I want to give you at least four historical reasons we know that that happened. And this is from secular history. OK, and in fact, if you want to look at a, a historian, um, uh, Kenneth Latterett, who is a former uh, professor of history at Yale University, wrote a book on the expansion of Christianity, okay? And he, he, he actually marks these, these reasons on why historically Christianity basically expanded and uh, why, how, how did it survive and how did it not only survive, how did it thrive? Number one, he said it came to a culture that in the time, the Roman culture, if you'll look, for, for hundreds of years, they had adopted this mentality of, you know what, there are no absolute truths, are there? There are, you know, there are multiple cultures. We're polytheistic, we're synchronistic. All these groups come in, and now the cultures come to a place where, you know what, there's not really a right or wrong. Who says marriage is right or wrong? Uh, who says sex outside of marriage? Who says we have to parent our children? Uh, who, who says uh, anything is right or wrong? It's all up to the individual. There is no absolute truth. And... The culture became just so corroded and so crumbled and the fabric of the family so began to disintegrate that people began to say, we got to have some kind of truth. we got to have some kind of righteousness. It can't just be an egotistical emperor of the day. There has to be some kind of moral or standard. And because Christianity offered an absolute truth, it was an absolute truth that people were, were dying for within faith. People, some people said, at least there is truth there. At least there is a standard of righteousness. And so some historians say one of the reasons that Christianity thrived was because they believed in absolute truth. And they had some standards by which the society could rest upon. Number two, 
They were inclusive of all people groups. Now, what do I mean by that? They're inclusive of all people groups. Most religions at that time were very male dominated and not only male dominated, but educated and sometimes even affluently dominated. In other words, you would never have slaves in your worship service. You would not have women in your worship service. You would typically not have people of other nationalities and certainly people who were poor and ignorant would not be worshiping with you, okay? That was not how religions typically were built, and that's not where the essence of most religions uh, of their cult, of their their faith lied, okay? So they were pretty usually exclusive. They would say, it's this group, and we want to reach this group, okay? And these, this is the group that we're going to have. But Christianity broke down those paradigms, and all of a sudden we see women being included. Matter of fact, uh, we were talking about Pliny earlier in a letter to, to Trajan, he talks about how he had interrogated and actually tortured. I just tortured two uh, maid servants, but who really, uh, really didn't give me a lot of information. They would not. They endured the torture, but it was interesting. And they were de- and they were called deaconesses in their churches. Oh my goodness! So we had women who had position and who were fully accepted in the corporate worship. Not to mention they were maid servants, so they were poor. And here they are a part of the corporate body. So they were inclusive of different people groups. They had slaves uh, worshiping with slave owners. It, it was unbelievable. It was countercultural. Number three, they were flexible with non-essentials, uh, but they were committed to the tenets of the faith. They were flexible about the non-essentials, but they were committed to the tenets of the faith. And what do we mean about that? Well, in a lot of religions, uh, they weren't flexible. There was a certain diet. There was a certain garb you had to wear. There was a certain way you had to look. And we're not going to be flexible on that. If you're coming from another culture, you're going to have to adapt. And you're going to have to buy into our culture. But Christianity said, look, here are the tenets of our faith. It's Jesus Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection. We're going to place our faith in him. We're saved by grace. And if you can ascribe to that, we may not agree on a lot of things. And you may look different. Your hair may be long. You may have rings. You may have whatever. But let me tell you, this is what binds us together. And so they didn't require a lot of extracurricular activity if you would ascribe to Jesus Christ and Him alone as your salvation. Number four, the big one, life transformation. The culture began to look around. They go, whose life is really different? Who has really been transformed? And the Christians, their lives were transformed. Why were they literally dying for their faith? Why were they giving up in huge amounts their resources to take care of the poor and the needy and the brethren within the body? Why were they taking care of of widows and orphans and those who had been left out in the street? And they looked and they thought, I remember some of them. They were just like me. And now they've totally been transformed. Dr. Larrett says, you know what, those four, this is secular historians say these four are the primary reasons. But yet, you know, there's, there's one other reason. The reason because of that transformation that we won't find in the historical accounts is because it all had to start somewhere. Why were they willing to live for absolute truths? Why were they willing to include other people groups? Why would they be flexible with their faith, but so strong on their tenets that they'd be willing to die for them? How could they have such life transformation? And you know what all goes back to? The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ 
And their faith in Him transformed their lives. And what you see is not a group of, I'll just kind of take it, lukewarm Christianity. You see people who are willing to die for their faith, if that's what it means. As a matter of fact, there's another quote that Pliny makes as he's writing to Trajan. There's another writing that we still have. And he says, uh, Pliny's writing to Trajan, the emperor, and he says, you know, uh, he said, I just solicited a group uh, of, of so-called Christians, and uh, we brought them in, and we told them what the punishment was going to be. And um, But they must not have been really been Christians, because first of all, they pledged, uh, they, they prayed to the gods, uh, and then they... Um, they sacrificed to you. They did their. They burned the incense and said, "Hail Caesar." And then, thirdly, they cursed Christ. He said, "Which no Christian would really do." So I let them all go because they obviously weren't Christians, at least not the type that we have been seeking uh, to exterminate, to get rid of. And so it was interesting. Even those who sought to kill them saw the difference. What was the difference? It's because they saw, they experienced the grace and the power of Jesus Christ. His death, His burial, and His resurrection, and it completely changed history. They didn't just see it as something, okay, yeah, that's, that's nice. I go to church. They say, you know what? I will stake my life upon this principle that Jesus died for me, and if He asks me for my life, I will give it freely. I will give a cup of cold water to those who are different than me, who are not in my economic stratus, who are not of my gender, who are not of my culture. For those who have need, I will refresh them. You see the transformation as opposed to, let's just all get together and be happy and be safe. That's what's changed the culture. That's why we are here to worship today. The question is, did Laodicea hear that message? Did they hear that message and say, I repent, I renew my faith, and Jesus come in and take over? You know what the good news is? History tells us that they did, at least for a while. Because we see just about 50 or 60 years later, uh, we see the church thriving. And we see about 200 years later, we see that uh, there's a council there that literally meets in Laodicea. They hear that message and they repent. The question is, will we as the North American church hear that same message today? Or will we be secure with safety and say, it's about me being safe. It's all about me. Or will we see our faith as something that we stand passionately for about our what we believe in the tenets of the faith, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, Christ and Him alone is our Savior that we commit our lives to, that transforms our lives. And we are willing to serve those who are less fortunate. We are willing to love those who are in need and to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Or will we just say, it's just about me. Will we be lukewarm in a spirit of which Jesus says, Quite frankly, that makes me sick. What does Jesus say about you? And here's a better question. If I ask your neighbors or your friends or your relatives, are they a follower of Christ? Or they go, you know, I really don't know. I really have no idea. Never, never really noticed anything one way or the other. What would your answer be? Father, thank you so much. God, that You've given us the prescription here. That You've exposed, uh, Lord, what many of us deal with here today in North America. God, because we've been so immensely blessed, because things have been so good, it's so easy for us to get consumed with ourselves and think it's all about us. And to get into our success 
to get into our fortune, to get into our careers. But Lord, I pray that we not forget that as Christians, it's not meant to be a generic name, but it means one who follows Christ, follows Christ to the cross, follows Christ to death of our flesh, follows Christ to, to give of our lives, to give of our resources, to give of our time so that we might refresh others with the message of Christ. Lord, I pray that it would be true of us that we are be hot or cold or both. But Lord, let it not be said that we are simply trepid, that we are simply lukewarm. Lord, we thank You for what You've done and we thank You for what You will do in the days ahead. And Lord, we give You praise and glory for this time. In Your name I pray. Amen.